Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Logical Formal Probable, where today we have the opportunity to have a conversation with the one and only Perry Marshall, someone that I've followed for quite some time on one of my favorite topics, as those of you who subscribe to the channel know. And that is the unavoidable reality that the information and communication theories are fundamental to our very existence. And when viewed through that prism, the plausibility of neo-Darwinism just completely implodes. Now, buckle up, everyone, and stay focused, because when he's not donating his time for conversations like this one, Perry is actually one of the most expensive business strategists in the world. And he's been endorsed by Forbes and Inc. Magazine. Uh, his reinvention of the Pareto Principle is published in Harvard Business Review. And NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs use his 80-20 curve as a productivity tool. And if that wasn't enough, he is also an electrical engineer and published scientist aiming to solve the number one mystery in artificial intelligence and life itself. To further that objective, he actually organized a private equity fund. And in 2019, at London's Royal Society, he announced the world's largest scientific research challenge, the $10 million Evolution 2.0 Prize, which is staffed by judges from institutions of uh, no merit like uh, Harvard, Oxford, and MIT. If that all wasn't enough, he has a phenomenal book that I've had in my recommended reading for quite some time called Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design, which is available on Amazon. And he also has a fantastic audiobook version, which I strongly recommend over on audible.com. And links to all of these are in the description. Perry, I know there's a lot more to your resume, but I hope that gives you know, our audience kind of a brief overview and introduction to your background. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us and uh, be able to share where you spent a significant amount of time and uh, energy uh, researching. It's an honor to be on your show, and you've tried this territory a lot, and so I think we're going to have a really great conversation. I'm really happy to be here, so thank you, John. Well, I appreciate that very much. And now before we get folks in the audience, uh, we've only got a hard hour with Perry because he's a busy man, so make sure you're paying attention, stay focused. Uh, we may have enough time to have a couple questions at the very end, probably won't, so just uh, but like I said, buckle up and uh, let's get going. But before we get into some of you know the more technical questions, I know there's a very interesting backstory as to how you became involved in you know the evolution discussion in general and the chemicals to code problem. Uh, and in your book, you go into you know a lot of detail about this. But can you give the audience kind of you know, just a, a brief overview as to what led you down this very very interesting path? At one time, I'd never been down the evolution rabbit hole, and I didn't have a really strong opinion about it. My brother and I are both pastor's kids. And I went into business and he went to seminary and then he went to China and he became a missionary. And four years into his missionary work, I went to see him and he goes, Gary, I don't believe this stuff anymore. And I'm done being a missionary and I'm living in China and I'm gonna come home in a month or two. And now we had sort of been already having this conversation for a couple of years, but it, it had lurched way ahead of where I thought it was. And I was kind of shocked when we got into this argument. And I'm like, Brian, look at the end, at the end of your arm. I said, this is a nice piece of engineering. And you don't think this is an accumulation of accidents to you. He goes, fun. 
And it comes right back to uh, with this neo-Darwinian random mutation natural selection story. And I thought, rifled through my mental file folders as an engineer, having done engineering at that point for like 20 years. And I could not think of a single fact that I knew that would verify that what he was saying was true. But I also knew without even pushing it any further, I knew that a lot of biologists would agree with him and not me. And so I was sitting there with a question. Do I know something they don't know? Do they know something I don't know or what? And I thought, you know what? You guys are making yourself miserable in this argument. You're clearly not going to solve it today. Why don't you go home and figure this out then? And you go down this evolution rabbit hole because he's already been priming you with all kinds of questions. And so I went home from China and I hit the books. And I started, well, within a few weeks, I realized, like, you're not even going to figure this out reading the regular popular books. You need to read the actual scientific literature. And so I started going down that rabbit hole. And I was kind of terrified. Like, maybe there's a whole bunch of stuff that I don't know. And maybe the end of my arm, maybe that sense of design or purpose that I think that I see, maybe that's an illusion. And maybe there's a whole deeper level of science that I never knew. And I'm about to find out. So here we go down the rabbit hole. And I had no idea how fascinating this is going to get. And so that's how this started. And that was... 18 years ago, if you can believe it. So I've now been immersed in evolutionary biology for 18 years. <laughs> well, that's uh, somebody I've been looking into this stuff for you know the last five or six years, really about well, eight for me, but the intensity for the last couple of years. And it's really amazing the, the points that you're you know, you're talking about in terms of, you know, if you're just starting on the surface level and if you stop the dive, then it's easy to go, oh, well, they've got this figured out. It's no big deal. But then clearly think I'm wrong on this, but when you kind of, Go beneath the surface suddenly you're like wait a minute that doesn't really add up that doesn't compute in terms of what is actually the rational conclusion and i'm assuming from an engineering perspective it's quite even more apparent to you is, is that a well, statement so my question was do i know something they don't know or do they know something i don't know the truth was the cells in your body know something that nobody knows that's the truth and i became quickly very frustrated with the way that this whole discussion is normally framed, I quickly came to the conclusion that both sides had really butchered the entire conversation. The question wasn't even creation versus evolution or intelligent design versus evolution. The real question was, is there something intrinsically purposeful in nature or not? And what is the difference between life and non-life? And uh, just to kind of add a little more spice to the equation, you know, I, I probably a year into this, one of my friends said, hey, Perry, Richard Dawkins is going to be on this NPR station. You might want to listen. He's going to be debating George Gilder. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I tuned in and somebody called in and said, Professor Dawkins, where did life come from? And he goes, it was a happy chemical accident. And then he just went on to the next question. And I thought, 
uh, what? Like, you're an Oxford professor and you're answering serious questions with that level of flippancy and arrogance? You know, we need to foster a attitude of inquiry instead of doctrinaire, oversimplified, non-answers to serious questions. So that kind of gets us into the beginning of this story. And so, yeah, so fast forward, uh, I've got a book that's sold rather well called Evolution 2.0, and I've organized the world's largest science prize for fundamental research. Well, it's uh, definitely been a, a journey, and that uh, I'm going to get into the a very significant question here in just a second. But, folks, as I mentioned, uh, if this, there we go. If uh, you want to check out Perry's book, uh, it's over on Amazon and Audible. Links are in the description. Uh, it's definitely worth your time to check out. And I kind of joke that if young Earth creationists, old Earth, theistic evolutionists, traditional Darwinists want to be triggered, it is an excellent book to go and read because it will uh, it covers all the bases and basically says, hey, to your point you just made. You know, we might not be approaching this from the right, you know, perspective at the end. In line with that, something that I know was a fundamental to you know, kind of the journey you went down, and something that's very fascinating to me is that so many, you know, PhD biologists uh, seem rather uninformed about what you know digital information is. You know, the fundamental basics of the Shannon Weaver model of communication. You know, what constitutes a digital code? Can you give us kind of a short rundown on? these concepts, and if you're aware of anyone who actually understands them, uh, that disagrees with their application to biology in a literal sense versus, you know, metaphor or analogy, which we hear ad nauseum. Well, so about a year after this conversation I had with Brian, I had figured out a few things. I had figured out that, so I wrote an Ethernet book in 2002, and one of my huge epiphanies was realizing, hey, wait a minute, the genetic code and digital code on the internet at a conceptual level are absolutely identical. The details are different, but the math is the same, the theories are the same, the principles are the same. So I formulated some arguments and I ended up a year later on Infidels, which at the time was the world's largest atheist website in the middle of the world's largest atheist discussion board. And I was defending my ideas and I had to get my definition of information exactly right. And the definition that I put together, which now is part of a $10 million prize, is information is symbols exchanged between an encoder and a decoder. So, John, you send me a text. I receive the text. The text getting sent to me is encoding, and me reading the text on my cell phone is decoding. And this is the most basic concept in the world. Anybody that's ever used a walkie-talkie or Morse code or a cell phone or a chat or an email or anything like that, we swim in symbolic digital information. This is the information age, right? So biologists and engineers are very, very different creatures. They're educated differently. They think differently. And as an engineer coming into biology, I realized, well, they normally, they tend to describe all this stuff as chemicals, but the genetic code is not a chemical thing. It's encoded in the chemicals, okay? But it is not something that is derivable from chemistry. And this is a really, really important point. And in biology, information organizes chemicals, not the other way around. So the genetic code says 
GGG is supposed to make glycine and AAA is supposed to make glycine and those are amino acids which then become protein. But it really starts with the information. So I would get in all these arguments with people and they couldn't define information. So when I was in the atheist forum, so I had an argument and the argument was DNA is code, all the other codes are designed, therefore DNA is designed. And they tried to literally argue with all three points. They tried to argue that DNA really isn't a code. They tried to argue that there's all kinds of other codes that aren't designed. And then they tried to argue that you're not allowed to make an inference that therefore DNA is designed. They were completely wrong on all of these points. And this became the longest running, most viewed thread in the history of that forum. And it grew to, I don't know, well over a thousand posts and a hundred thousand views. And every time somebody posts something else, it would like pop up to the top of the list. It went on for seven years and it became very, very embarrassing to them because they were not refuting anything that I was saying. It became obvious that they were wrong and they were contradictory and that my definitions were correct. Of course they were correct. I took them right out of an engineering textbook and I went to the Oak Park Library and I I think I came out with 20 or 30 books and I quoted them all. I'm like, the genetic code is like a, a real actual code, just like Morse code or HTML or any or Chinese or English or any other code. And so what this means is that in biology, we have this very, very fundamental problem, which is where did information come from? Not only where did it come from, where does it come from now? Which is really the question of where do your thoughts come from and where do your decisions come from? Which is the question of agency. So I believe that the most fundamental question in biology is actually a function of agency, which is what makes this stuff alive? And the answer is nobody knows. So the amateurs all argue about this endlessly. And I found a bunch of YouTube videos where you're arguing with a bunch of guys who don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Well, I'll tell you this. I have not had one legitimate, serious scientist tell me that I have incorrectly defined information in the Evolution 2.0 prize. And I have people like George Church, who's the leading geneticist at Harvard Medical School, on my judgment. One, one of the most cited individuals on the planet, I believe, is uh, for anybody who's an academic who knows this, I believe his H index is like 267 or something in that range. It's off the charts. Continue, and sorry. Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize two years ago. Okay. So, like, I have this defined properly. And, and just to give you a little backstory. One of my motivations was, you know, I'm in this atheist forum. I'm getting all this nonsense just slung at me, along with the insults and the jeers and the snarky remarks and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, we need to make it so abundantly clear the information problem in biology, and for that matter, the design problem by biology. We need to make it so clear that this has not been solved, that it is checkmate in literally five seconds. How do we do that? We define this exactly, correctly, perfectly, the same way Claude Shannon did in 1948. We get world-class, unquestionably qualified academics on a judging panel, and we put together a $10 million prize 
not for the purpose of winning arguments, but for the purpose of starting a conversation that will actually be productive. Because you'll never solve the deepest problems in biology if you don't even know what they are. And so I defined what they are. And then this has opened all kinds of doors, which we can get into. I'm now involved in all kinds of interesting cancer research, virus research, friends with a lot of really amazing scientists who are actually trying to solve these problems instead of just fling feces at each other and make talking points and social media and whatever else nonsense is going on. Well, it's interesting you know, the point you make there about the real high-level research is going on to operating from this perspective, right? I find it extraordinarily fascinating how many folks I deal with here on YouTube who claim that there's nobody that's actually an academic who is trying to analyze the root necessities for functionality to exist from the information and communication theory perspective. And baseline, and I'm like, have you guys not read a paper that's been published in, to your point on like cancer research or all the trying to understand it, like in the proteomes and everything else. Like I read, a, there was a huge release that happened in 2020, at very beginning of 2020. It was like 200 and something papers published in synchronicity in nature on this exact topic. And I remember reading through several of them, they made the direct points of like, hey, we've got to stop operating from the perspective that this is just, you know, all these different portions of the genome don't do anything, that we don't need to study them, that we can just dismiss their existence because we're now finding all of these different um, roots to different diseases that are caused by errors in these coding and non-coding regions. Therefore, we've got to start, uh, you know, kind of paying attention to all this stuff. And anyway, that's a whole other uh, a diatribe we can go down. But I find that so fascinating how there's like seems to be this line of demarcation. On one side, people, especially on the neo-Darwinist camp, want to act like, this can be, you know, excluded and doesn't have to be assessed. And on the other side, in the real world application, it's like, wait a minute, we can't ignore this anymore. Well, you know, John, I would say that this stuff was deliberately and systematically swept under the rug successfully for decades. And that abruptly stopped in 2016. And that was when Dennis Noble organized the meeting at the Royal Society on evolution and he was vigorously opposed, by the way. There was a whole bunch of guys, they, they circulated a petition, we don't need this, and this is homeopathy and all of that. But what was really going on was they were afraid of being shown to be sticks in the mud, trying to prevent a conversation that's been needing to happen for a very long time. And Dennis got that meeting to happen, and I was there, and it was historical, and it was the first time that I've ever seen neo-Darwinists who traditionally were arrogant, snarky, snide, rude, pompous, and everything else, backpedaling and mumbling excuses and looking embarrassed and not really wanting to discuss this anymore. And most of them wouldn't even come even though they were invited. And after that meeting, they almost gotten completely silent. Dennis Noble has offered Jerry Coyne, Daniel Dennett, a whole bunch of guys. Hey, I'll debate you anytime, anywhere. And none of them want to do it because he will make them look like a fool. The version of evolution that you read in a Richard Dawkins book is a Dick and Jane story. It has almost nothing to do with the way real evolution actually works. It gets cause and effect backwards. And it doesn't tell you hardly anything you actually need to know. Now, unfortunately, the people on the other side have taken the bait, okay? The creationists, in some cases, are just as bad, and they go round and round and round. Like, I guess the epitome of this would be Bill Nye and Ken Ham, 
both talking about completely irrelevant things and neither one of them actually even knowing what they're talking about. And then everybody thinking that like that's an evolution debate. That was an evolution debate. That was two ideologues um, slinging crap at each other and uh, making a publicity event and further polarizing an already scorched earth topic. And when I got into the real meat of how evolutionary processes actually work and the incredible sophistication and all of the stories that nobody had told me, I was like, this has got to be the biggest untold story I have ever seen in my life. And by the way, I'm a marketer. Like, if anybody knows like untold stories, it would be marketers. Like, we deal with them all the time and they happen every day, right? And it's the job of any marketing person to go like find the real story and get it out there because there are better ideas and better products and better services and better everything. And it's our job to broadcast those to the world. And so when I discovered people like Barbara McClintock and Lynn Margulis and, uh, you know, including people who are alive, like James Shapiro, doing incredibly sophisticated work that turns out to be very relevant to viruses and cancer and disease. I would say that neo-Darwinism has set back science and medicine at least 50 years. In Shapiro's book on the topic, his book on evolution is, uh, I found that one very fascinating. I'm assuming you've probably read his, read that book and many of his papers on the topic. It's the point you're making about the all different things that aren't accounted for, you know, transposition and all these different amazing code rewrites and reorganization. And, you know, to me, what well number one you're absolutely 100 percent correct that's not being discussed in the public sphere anyway right. and then i think even on the uh, evolutionary biology side at least in the undergrad and even to in some cases the grad school level it's still not being discussed because correct. i mean i've had conversations with phd evolutionary biologists and who are t- currently teaching freshmen and sophomores evolutionary biology and I can guarantee you they're not talking about this stuff because no. they've claimed when I've, when I've raised arguments, you know, on these kinds of topics, they ignore it and claim it doesn't. I'm making things up or don't know what I'm talking about or I'm misunderstanding, you know, things of that nature. And it's like, nah, which, I don't know about that. You know, the, the textbooks are 25 years out of date. In fact, James Shapiro and Dennis Noble wrote a paper a few months ago, and there's a press release about it on PR Newswire. You can find it explaining that. All of the popular evolution books from Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne to even people like Doug Fatuma, who wrote one of the most popular evolutionary biologist textbooks that's used in all the university classrooms, they leave 80% of the evolution story completely out. Because what the story really is It really goes back to Barbara McClintock, who figured out that a corn plant, when its DNA was deliberately damaged by radiation by her, started massively reorganizing its genome and repairing sections of DNA with other sections of DNA. And it was like, well, this information got destroyed and we don't even have an original copy that we can replace it with, but I think this will work. Let's grab this over here and stick it over there. And this is literally what a plant did. And she figured this out in the 1940s, and she won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for figuring this out. And like, there isn't any any scientist that would tell you that she was wrong or that transposition is not a real thing or anything like that. 
But it's only the tip of the iceberg because what nobody knows is how did the plant know how to do that? That is the it, question in evolution. Right. If it's all just determinism and deterministic chemistry and, oh, it's just chemical reactions. We don't need to actually consider any of this stuff. Whatever. We can just ignore all the points that you're making and the, the underlying uh, and deep dive. And by the way, folks, I also in the description, I also have a link to a recent paper that Perry published. And it goes way deeper. And we may actually have another interview on this topic, but the we get into the computation aspect and how we need to go from you know chemicals to code to cognition to cognition to code to chemicals. I mean, it's a very, very fascinating read. And correct me if I think I'm wrong on this, Perry, but it seems to me like the point that you're what we're talking about right now and the points you're making in that paper and kind of starting the book are being willfully ignored by a lot, not all necessarily, but a lot of researchers because it would obliterate, you know, the strict materialist, uh, some of their worldview, let's say some of the worldviews, let's say, that might be contradicted if cognition is necessary prior to, and we don't have to get deep on the philosophical side, but to me, that seems like one of the reasons that it's kind of not being wanted to be addressed, at least not publicly. Well, I think there's several explanations. I think one explanation is there's some people that hate the creationists more than they love science. And they're not going to talk about anything that gives the other side a talking point. And just as an aside, especially with the polarization that all of us have experienced in the last couple, three years, and the way it's really accelerated, I think everybody can now appreciate that when an opponent is so hardened against their opponents, that they chisel the narrative down to some tiny fraction of what the real story is. And then you just have demagogues fighting with each other, right? I think we've all seen so much of that. We can all understand. And this is exactly what has been happening in evolution for a long time. And then I think also it's just kind of a culture thing in science that the average scientist is very uncomfortable having lengthy discussions about what we don't know. But I've also discovered something else. And let me take a little detour before I make my point, okay? When I was looking for judges for this prize, I cast about all over the place, okay? And it was really hard to get anybody to play ball with me. Most scientists would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. And it turns out, why? Because I'm engaging controversy. And frankly, the average scientist can't afford to get all that controversial. They got to get the papers published. They got to get funded. They can't have their reputation drug through the mud on the internet or anything like that. So they just kind of keep their nose clean and they stay in their lane. But then I got to people like Dennis Noble, George Church, Michael Ruse, who are at the top of their professions, and they're really, they've all achieved rock star status, which means they really don't care if there's some troll out there talking about them because there's already been some troll talking about them. And those guys love unanswered questions, and they're not afraid of an unanswered questions, and they're not playing not to lose, they're playing to win. Okay. And there's a whole nother category of scientists that love unanswered questions. Stuart Kaufman, Sarah Walker, Paul Davies, Addie Pross, James Shapiro, George Church, like all these guys. Before George came on board, I said, George, if you don't like controversy, don't do this. And George goes, Perry, everything I do 
is controversial. I am trying to make Jurassic Park at Harvard. Don't worry about it, Perry. It's really okay. You know, I can deal with it, right? And so, you know, George is in the middle of debates like, okay, we've got CRISPR and we got genome editing. So like, what could go wrong with that, right? I mean, well, dude, there's a lot that can go wrong with that, okay? So when you get to the top of the scientific profession, you have a completely different attitude than people like Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins who really wish we could just stay in the 1970s. And I realize this sounds harsh, but it's true. The selfish gene, he updated it in 2016 and it doesn't have anything new. It's as though the previous 25 years simply never happened. Mm -hmm. And it is a crime against civilization that information like this is being held up as science because it's not. And we can do so much better. And this got me into the cancer profession because two years ago, I started helping organize the Cancer and Evolution Symposium. And you'll never understand cancer unless you understand evolution. And you'll never understand evolution until you understand cancer because they're intimately related to each other. And they are both driven by the intelligence of cells. And so these questions are very deep in, you know, why is a person in stage four no better now than they were in 1930? Well, a lot of the reason is because of the reductionist paradigm in biology. Now, what do you do with a cancer patient? You hit them with chemo and radiation. Well, there's an assumption there that it's just chemicals. Well, it's a chemical problem, so we're going to dump chemicals in your body, and we're going to fix the chemicals with these other chemicals. Now, I realize that's a very, very oversimplified explanation of what's going on, but it really gets the heart of what the thinking is. It drives pharma. It drives, well, you know, all we need is a pill. All we need is a, you know, the, a quick fix. And if you pay attention, none of these cure anything. They keep but, people hooked on medications that are very expensive. Well, in line with you know the, what you're discussing here, I mean, I think that reductionist mindset and the way it's being you know pumped into up and coming academics' minds is very disturbing. It's like for case in point, I, I had a debate a year and a half ago with an individual who's now working on their PhD, and to this day still denies that there is information processing happening in cells. Well, and I'm just like, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, how do you even address this? And what are you talking about? But just extrapolate this out to me from my mind. Of, and I'm sure you've thought about this many, many times. Like you extrapolate this out to, you know, 15, 20 years from now, that individual could be teaching other people. And if there can't be a hard break in this mindset, then to your point, we're going to have an ongoing slowdown, if you will, in research and potential solutions to problems because our understanding of biology will in perpetuity be limited if we maintain something as baseline as there is no information processing happening. I mean, that's like a basic, that's like a way down on the lower, lower end of the totem pole. Unless I'm incorrect on that. I would like to know what he thinks the field of bioinformatics is for. Do all these journals exist for no reason at all? But well, and to, to further the point, why do we make a distinction between physics and chemistry and biochemistry in genetics, in psychology, well, 
you know, when, when I was debating with the atheists, it was like, well, so you guys are, are really basically trying to tell me that you can start with the laws of physics and get to psychology, right? And they go, well, yes, of course you can. Everything is just physics and chemistry. Okay, then prove it. And if you can prove it, I've got $10 million for you. And if you can't prove it, shut up and maybe pick up a book. Yeah, I, I'm guessing you are very intimate with this quote from uh, Norbert Wiener. He says, information is information, not matter or energy. And there's been multiple papers on the whole aspect of how like the genetic code, for example, is it operates within the laws of physics and chemistry, but is not determined by them. And right. things of that nature. And to me, it's like, this is well established. I mean, this, this has been around for a long time. What are we talking about this? And as a quick sidebar, one of my favorite annoying uh, questions I get asked, I'm, I'm, I would gamble that you have, actually, I know you have, because I think you wrote about this in the book. Can you explain to the audience why snowflakes and the crystal and patterns in snowflakes are not equivalent to code and specifically the genetic code because oh, there's crystals therefore they're code can you explain that because i was i'm sure you've heard that one many 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 times even though you wrote a book and addressed the whole thing on this what would you say to folks who bring those kind of like surface level talking points okay so in order to have a meaningful conversation about information we have to have a definition of information that actually distinguishes it from anything else if i define information as anything that could be different well, then everything's information, okay? But if I define information as symbols exchanged between an encoder and a decoder, then I've described English, Chinese, HTML, Morse code, barcode, genetic code, QR code, any kind of code you want. I've correctly defined that, right? And then I say, okay, so... We can make a snowflake in the refrigerator. I don't need to design one. I can go get one out of my backyard right now because it's winter. Show me where the encoding and the decoding is in a snowflake. And then you hear silence. Like, where is the snowflake sending messages to another snowflake? Well, there are no messages getting sent back and forth in a snowflake. And so we use this simple definition of an encoder, a message, and a decoder, and we added a couple little fine points to it. We said, if you can pour chemicals in your bathtub and get an encoder and a decoder and a message going between them, as long as the message has at least five bits of information, which isn't a lot, but your system has to encode and decode 32 states, which again, it's a pretty simple system, but if you can do that, we will patent it and we'll buy the patent from you for $10 million and we'll partner you into the company. But that neatly defines what a communication system is. And all biology has communication systems. Cells have that. You know, you and I talking is a communication system, right? Our computers facilitating the conversation is a communication system. And so I had to make this so absolutely crystal clear, right? And so, like, I'd be happy to debate, like, these guys that you get in these debates with. But, but what you'll find is, as soon as they figure out that I know what I, I'm talking about, they don't want to have the debate anymore. Because there's nothing to debate. A snowflake is not code. A snowflake is not an information processing system. And a cell is. 
And we don't know how you get from snowflakes to cells. We don't know how you get from matter to life. And we need to find out. Well, you know, you may think that people wouldn't debate you on that, but I guarantee you I could find you a few, uh, well, a few that might want to get to and, and sidebar folks. What uh, Perry was just talking about in terms of the communication systems that are necessary for he and I to have this conversation right now. I strongly recommend you go over and get his book because there's a whole chapter on this topic and goes into great detail about all the layers of information, the different encode and decode processes. I think it's what, at a minimum, like 12 just for sending an email, right? Before you even start factoring in, if you have attachments and all these different things, and he goes into great detail on this topic in his book. So I strongly recommend you going and uh, checking that out as well. And he's got some of this in a more uh, overview uh, standpoint over on uh, evo2.org as well, which is also, link is also, is also in the description for that. But it's like, this stuff is such basic telecommunications and information and communication theory principles. And as you said earlier in, this, in our conversation, we live in the information age. Like, how is this not being understood by the average person? And but my personal theory is that because we now live in the drag and drop universe um, of technology, it's my strong assertion that a large number of people, even folks who are being coming out of college with computer science degrees and software engineers and such, they are no longer being taught Shannon's 1948 paper. They're never not being taught the baselines of telecommunication, except for those uh, getting degrees like more in the telecommunications aspect. Outside of them, they're not being taught these fundamentals because they're, they're now stuff at, they're up at the higher level language level and ignoring the other. And if you, if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a brief overview on like the OSI seven models and how that kind of is applicable. Well, so when I was a communications engineer and writing an ethernet book and selling, I sold networking equipment for six years. There's this concept in computer science called the seven layer model. And the number seven is completely arbitrary. It, you know, it could be three to 30, but it's the idea that when I send you an email, it takes the message and it encodes it and then encodes it again and then encodes it again and encodes it again. And it keeps adding information and making more layers. And it goes to you in all these ones and zeros. And then your computer in exact opposite order unpacks all of those layers. And then it puts the email on your screen. It's a very hierarchical process. It goes from the top down to the bottom and then from the bottom back up to the top. And you have to do it in the exact order that in the reverse of what it was done. And every communication engineer understands this. And as soon as I realized that DNA was digital code, I realized it is therefore absolutely impossible that the mutations that create evolution are random because randomness is noise and noise destroys codes. And as an author of an ethernet book, I knew that every time one of those layers is encoded, it comes with a whole bunch of error correction and error detection messages that get bundled in there so that when you're going down your highway on the expressway on your cell phone and you're watching a video, and there's all this noise and interference and other engines and radio stations and everything else, you still get the signal clean because it has the ability to detect and correct the errors. And it would never, ever, ever, ever in a trillion years work if it didn't have that. And I realized, therefore, cells have to have that too. And then I found out they do. 
In fact, they have layers and layers of error correction. And not only is the error correction incredibly sophisticated with tons of resources, but if the signal is damaged, they're even smart enough to repair it with something else that might be good enough, might work. And this actually is an evolutionary mechanism because the organism is able to predict in the future what it might need. And this has been very thoroughly documented now. There's tons of literature on this. And so it turns out that evolution itself is a very, very purposeful process, just like your computer and my computer are purposeful and just like YouTube is purposeful and just like, right? And so it brings us back again to this question of purpose and agency and what are those things and where do those come from? And the answer is nobody knows, but that's really at the heart of this whole question. Okay, so to address that uh, from the neo-Darwinian perspective, right? So the error correction stuff, even though to your point and folks in the audience, uh, in my publicly available folder, in the information encoding subfolder, there are papers on hamming error correction codes and the equivalencies and all these different things. There's a bunch of papers on that in my open folder. So don't act like, I don't wanna hear in comments how we're just making things up, so on and so forth. There's This is well-documented, well-sourced, like this is, anyway. From the neo-Darwinian perspective, right? They, I hear things all the time like, oh, well, uh, Negan Trophy exists, therefore it could account for the error correction and all these kind of things. You know, we, we see this in thermodynamics, just because uh, energy is lost, it can be regained. I, I hear these kind of talking points. It's, it's something I've he been hearing over the last like year and a half or so. This is without the error correction mechanisms already being in place. They claim that this sort of thing can be accounted for through random process. Okay, what would so you say, say to that? Okay, so Claude Shannon, in his 1948 paper, which is the Magna Carta of the Information Age, I mean, it's the basis of the digital age we now live in, he ingeniously defined something called information entropy. And he made the brilliant realization that the math for information entropy is the same as thermodynamic entropy. So let me put this in plain English. When your toast pops out of the toaster, it doesn't get hotter, it gets cold, always. Never gets hot, always gets cold. When information is subjected to noise, it always degrades, it never improves. And the two are, the, the toast and the noise are mathematically identical in toast growing colder is thermoentropy, and noisy television station not getting any better is information entropy, and they're both not reversible, okay? Now, Erwin Schrodinger in 1943 wrote a book called What is Life? And he said, life has something called negentropy, negative entropy, and it is the thing that causes life to continue to maintain order when it should become disordered. Now, I wrote a paper in May of 2021, which we can talk about in a future interview, where I point out that negative entropy is the same as choice in agency. So the reason that a beaver makes a dam is it's exercising agency and it is modifying the environment around it so that it has a home, right? 
And your body maintaining its constant temperature is a function of agency. Like it maintains the temperature regardless of all these unpredictable situations. That's because of agency. Evolution also happens because of agency. And agency and negative entropy are the same. So negative entropy exists, but we don't know what it is. We know that no non-living systems have neg entropy. Neg entropy is an exclusive property of life. And the central question in the information problem in biology is where does neg entropy come from? And nobody knows. The neo-Darwinists got it wrong when they said it comes from copying errors. No, it doesn't. It corrects copying errors. It doesn't come from copying errors. So the neo-Darwinists got it completely backwards. They are confusing signal and noise, and they don't know the difference. And a biologist is often very fuzzy about these things, but an engineer is not. <laughs> That's very interesting. And yes, like I said, folks, the paper that Perry just referred to is a very, very fascinating read. And if you are willing to go down the rabbit hole and, you know, kind of expand your mind and not be, you know, closed-minded in the, oh, the only thing that must be true is, you know, neo-Darwinian theory, which is, we're told ad nauseum, right? It's a fact. It's a fact. It's been proven beyond all doubt. Like, anybody who questions this is just, you know, dealing with cognitive bias and you know, all these different things that, and it's like, well, hang on, you're ignoring the points that you're making, right? And things that are well-established in information communication theory, and then claiming that we're, you know, folks like you or I or other folks that are even more educated than either one of us, that have a difference of opinion that somehow they don't understand what they're talking about. I mean, I can only imagine if an evolutionary biologist was talking, if Claude Shannon was still alive and it was telling him he didn't understand that the genetic code was not actually a code. <laughs> I mean, it would be a, it would be hilarious at that point. Right. Well, I've got a page on my website. If you just go to evo2.org and type is DNA a code, you'll find a whole bunch of articles. I have so many references that confirm that it's a code. It's beyond in any dispute. And so I think what you're referring to is there's a place where a water cooler conversation is right now, but especially with old school neo-Darwinists. But then there's the place where the people doing the real work in the sciences are doing. And neo-Darwinism is, is dead. Like put a fork in it. Jerry Coyne's not willing to defend it. Okay, Daniel Dennett's not willing to defend it. None of these guys are actually willing to stand up and have a debate with the people that know what's going on. And so, like, there's a whole other place. And I experienced some of this uh, when I became part of the Cancer and Evolution Working Group under the American Association of Cancer Research. Uh, I'm a, one of the co-founders of that group. And there is some really extraordinary research uh, going on there. Um, my paper was part of a special issue of progress in biophysics and molecular biology. It was a cancer issue. And I think we had 16 papers from people, Michael Levin and Frank Laukin and uh, Dennis Noble, James Shapiro, Kenneth Pienta, some very, very eminent scientists. And so there's where the hockey puck was five years ago and there's where it's going now. And it's really a completely different conversation then the neo-Darwinists are still trying to fool themselves that they're trying to have. The, the conversation's completely moved on. Well, in line with that, and because we're, we're almost out of time here, so let's do a quick rapid fire, and then I want to close out with us telling everybody about the a little more detail about the prize and where they can go to find out more. So obviously, Evolution 2.0 is, you know, you're not against the concept of evolution in terms of change and evolution itself, 
but you're against the neo-Darwinian version of it. So what would you say, and just like three things that you would say are reasons against it, against 1.0, and then the top three you would recommend people go research for themselves in favor of the 2.0 of evolution? Well, so if I were to summarize evolution 2.0 in two sentences, it's Darwinists underestimate nature and creationists underestimate God. What do I mean by that? I think both sides fail to take their own theory seriously enough. Okay, so if you're a naturalist, and if you don't want God and theology to be part of the conversation because you don't think that's science, okay, I get it. I understand how dragging God into science every time you don't know something can not be helpful. I get that, okay? God of the gaps. So I don't like God of the gaps. I don't. But you have to take science itself seriously, and you have to take experiments seriously, and you have to take empirical reality seriously, and you don't get to make up stories and call them science just because you want the world to operate a certain way. And I know there's people, they want the world to just be physics and chemistry and everything to just be billiard balls banging around in the universe. But the fact is, there's a bunch of stuff we don't understand. Are you going to admit we don't understand it? Or are you going to stonewall? Okay. On the theological side, I was trained to not like evolution, which I'm not going to go into the story. There's lots of Christians who don't like evolution. But let me give you an analogy. So do you remember, John, do you remember DOS? Like oh, yeah. DOS? Okay. I, I, I remember playing on that, doing DOS when I was like five or six years old, like 1991, maybe. Wow. Uh, yeah, somewhere. I, I vaguely remember, yes. Okay. So I want you to imagine that MS-DOS came out in 1983 or whenever that was, and no engineer at Microsoft ever touched it after that. Hands off the keyboards. I want you to imagine that DOS evolved a Windows 3.1 desktop, and then it eventually became a Windows 95 desktop, and eventually became what we got now. It sensed, you know, like somebody plugged in an Ethernet cable and it said, hey, there's a cable with data. We need to build software drivers to talk to that thing, and oh, we need antivirus, and let's build Microsoft Excel, and let's build Word, and let's say that DOS evolved into Windows of today without human programmers, would you be impressed? I don't think I could ever convince myself that that could have happened without no, a pre-seek intelligent agent. No, hypothetical. Oh, hypothetically, it would be some mind-bending stuff. I better go figure out how that happened. It would be the most mind-bending stuff ever. Okay, I would like to suggest to you that life has an innate, intrinsic ability to adapt in context to whatever gets thrown at it. So devil's advocate, if evolution is true, then the universe is more divinely ordered than the creationists ever imagined. And devil's advocate, they should have gratitude and be impressed at the divine ordering that made that possible. Mm -hmm. And my question to you, if you don't like the idea of evolution, well, doesn't it just require God to be even bigger than you thought he was before? That's the question that I would like to leave you with. Hmm. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, to me, I think a lot of the points that you've been making today and the when you just wrapped up there with, to truly contemplate, necessitate understanding the basics of information communication theory. Because I think if you don't understand them, then a lot of what you just said in terms of what is actually necessary to accomplish these things, 
kind of goes over people's heads and like they're not realizing like no 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 if you make a minor amount of errors a minor error in this code it can have a cascade effect all the way down and crashes all these things in terms of the layering of information that you're referring to either like you have one error in layer seven and it crashes everything else on when you're you know encoding or decoding like people just stuff just kind of just gets so i don't mostly addressed in my opinion i don't even think you have to understand information theory all you need to do is be an engineer or be a person who builds stuff and enjoys building stuff. And if you work on cars, or you build stereo equipment, or you're a computer programmer, or you do derby races, or model airplanes, or like whatever your thing is, or chemistry, these chemistry sets, right? How much intentionality and thought and deliberation does it take to get a combustion engine, right? And so, like, the really mind-bending thing about evolution, you can read my book and it'll really expand on this, is that even if you don't buy the grand evolutionary narrative, even if you only look at the evolutionary steps that we can clearly, unambiguously prove and demonstrate in the lab, hey, I got from species A to species B by doing these certain things, and look at the differences, even just those, they are so extraordinary. It is light years beyond the engineering of any human being, any MIT, any Harvard, any Microsoft, any Facebook or Google or Apple. It is exponentially beyond what we can imagine. And one blade of grass is 10,000 years ahead of any human technology. There is so much for us to learn. There is so much room for us to be humble before nature and to ask for wisdom to solve these problems because the problems are very real. You're hundred percent right on that. Every time I'm driving around or I see a tree, I think about the fact that from like a solar panel perspective, every one of those leaves is exponentially more efficient than ours. We have quantum coherence at room temperature in a wet environment. Like what? I mean, it's just some like, okay, my mind now blown the, uh, but uh, <laughs> but okay, so in line, we got, we're almost at time. So to wrap up here, the in line with what we're talking about in terms of how it's so far advanced over the years, now you started out putting up some of your own, like, well, some of it's still your money too, but you initially started with like a $10,000 bet basically to all the atheists of like, hey, prove me wrong. I'll write you a check for 10 grand. They didn't do now. That is all the way up to in a much more formal percentage. We've kind of talked about uh, throughout our conversation is the evolution 2.0 prize, which is now $10 million. And there's, you know, uh, private equity investors who've been like, hang on, this tech is what? What are we talking about here? And now I've put up capital to do this. Can you give us kind of a short overview about that and then where people can go to learn more about it? And also, folks, there's something ridiculous. Like, I think it's almost 400, maybe more than 400 now teams of researchers around the world who are involved in this contest. So can you kind of give us a little overview on that? And then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. So your time is valuable. So we put together a private equity group. And, uh, you know, a bunch of guys, wealthy guys got together and said, we want the information problem in biology solved. And if it's in a patentable form, we will pay for the patent and we will secure the intellectual property rights. And then whoever came up with it, we're going to write them a check for $10 million and partner them into the company because this might be worth a trillion dollars. Like, who knows? Okay, but it's not over with 10 million. And that, by the way, is an argument for not just making it a standard Nobel type science prize, like to actually own the intellectual property, because it's a trillion dollar industry that we're starting here, like whatever this thing is. Okay, and so we think that it deserves 
the kind of care and attention that a commercial enterprise would give it. And so I got these judges from Harvard, Oxford, MIT, Florida State University, and we announced it at the Royal Society in 2019, almost three years ago. And it's ongoing. If you go to evo2.org, you can click around. You can see all of the stuff we've got. I don't have 400 teams work on it. I don't know where that number came from, but we do get submissions probably every couple of weeks. I have a team that reviews the submissions. Most of them, honestly, aren't that good. Some of them are very interesting. And I've had some very, very talented scientists, as in maybe a step or two below Nobel Prize, say, I'm going to win that thing, or I think I know how to do that, or I think your contest is very fascinating. I So I there's an unbelievable show where Lee Cronin came on, and he's a very famous chemist. Um, uh, Stuart Kaufman, various people, you know, have in some way, shape, or form contributed or advised us or helped us. And, you know, like the guys that are playing to win as opposed to not playing not to lose, they think this is fascinating. And I think I think this is one of the most fundamental questions in all of science. It's certainly the most fundamental question I know how to precisely define. And I think there's all kinds of treasures like there's buried treasure around this question. And I think one of the reasons that people sweep this stuff under the rug is that at some level they know, like if you figure this out, life on earth completely changes. Humanity completely changes. And I think that's scary. I'll be the first to admit it is scary. It could be completely disastrous. It's like nuclear power. I think it's good that we discovered E equals MC squared. Right. No, it eventually led to atomic bombs because it also led to things like transistors and space travel, right? And so the only way forward is forward. No, it's a great point. And by the way, I, I know I got my number wrong. So there's 113 teams, and it's actually higher than last time I looked. Uh, it's uh, 2,000 innovators. So 2,000 people oh. are part of 113 teams. That's the current uh, data on uh, HeroX.com. So folks, that, by the way, this... Uh, a link that you can go to evo2.org and go over to as well as if you go, I have this link in the description as well, hero X forward slash evo2.o. You go over there and it's dedicated to this entire project. And uh, it's very interesting. There's a lot of different uh, updates and things you can get in real time over there on the hero X.com. Uh, so again, that link is in the description. So make sure you go over and check that out. I say all this to kind of be like to a lot of the haters and the folks who just don't want to accept reality of whether, and I say this all the time, whether or not you want to conclude that this requires a preceding intelligent agent with a conscious mind as it must be prior to, or there's some other explanation that does not change the reality that this is something you must address and has to be accounted for. Otherwise you're just skipping over to your point, one of the most, the fundamental questions of our very existence and the number one issue, whether it be in biology as well as artificial intelligence and all these different things like would you go back in time to your great point? Would you go back in time until Einstein to not come up with E equals MC squared? I mean, it's where we're at. Yeah. And, you know, John, early on, you know, this was a $10,000 bet with somebody who got me pissed off on my blog and I, I wanted them to shut up and, you know, and I was having an ego battle with them. And so I, I freely admit that, you know, this kind of started that way. But, if you know, a funny thing happened, John, when I got to the point where, I got a $10 million prize under my belt. I've got some of the best academics in the world that are supporting what I'm doing. I became very disinterested in 
winning talking points with a bunch of ideologues. And I became much, much more interested in the actual question. Okay. I mean, I could be an argumentative person and yeah, sometimes my ego gets into it, but really the unanswered questions and what do they mean and what are the implications of them and how might you solve this and what makes life tick in the first place, I think is a far more fascinating question than any talking or debate point that I could win with somebody over ideology or religion or whatever. I believe there's abundant evidence that the universe is divinely ordered. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think the fact that you and I are here having this conversation is a sort of a miracle in and of itself. And it's wonderful that we get to live in this world and ask these questions and look up in the sky and look down in the ocean and wonder what makes it, and we get to participate in figuring it out. That is like the coolest thing. Right. To me, what you just said is so relevant in the era in which we live, in which we have more access to knowledge than any other time in the history of humanity. And yet people are being more and more closed-minded on what actually is the cause and the things that must be addressed. I say this all the time in conversations I had to folks that are like the strict materialists and such. I'm like, you do realize that you might be cutting at least no less than 50% of what it means to exist out of your worldview. Like this is significant things that we actually need to contemplate and think about and, you know, not just be willing to give into dogmatic rigid talking points on both sides of the equation again on both sides of the equation that's why i said at the very beginning of this uh, this you know talk that we're having hey we may be triggering oecs yecs tes traditional neo-darwinists like everybody may be not like all the things that we're talking about but it's better to come in things with an open mind and actually address what it must be contemplated otherwise you're acting like a mental child in my opinion and don't want to actually think things through well perry i know you're uh, we're about seven minutes over uh, our hour, so I need to let you go. I thank you so much for your time. Any last words you want to say to the audience? And uh, thank you so much for your time. There is nothing more powerful than curiosity. And uh, we were all born curious. And somehow it got pounded out of a lot of us. And I just want all, everybody listening, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever it is that you're interested in, that you would just rekindle that curiosity and start asking questions and don't be afraid of people that are offended by your questions because there's nothing more powerful than a great question. Absolutely correct, sir. And as I say to the audience every time, as you contemplate the different things that are required for your very existence and you, you know, analytically look through the pieces of evidence, make sure that the conclusion you reach is logical, plausible, and probable. Have a good one, folks. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0